The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, Doxa Church. So today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 17. You can follow along on the screen behind me, or it's on page 230 in the Bibles underneath your chairs. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethgar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So this is interesting. You know, as we march through the Old Testament, in particular the book of Samuel, what we find, what we stumble across, and you think this happened, you know, three or 4,000 years ago. Is this really relevant to us? And it amazes me that when you see a life well-lived for the cause of Christ, it doesn't matter when that life lived. It shines as an example. It sets a bar or a standard within our own lives on how we truly can live. Because if we don't adopt that conclusion, we're saying that the power of God has waxed and waned over generations through believers, that there have been times where God says, no, I'm not going to dispense to you my power and authority to live out all that I want you to live. We're saying that's a lie, and that's heresy as far as I'm concerned. The power of God is alive and well and present for anyone that comes to him, 
and that truly lives according to the way he's called to live. And that, that doesn't mean we, we don't have feet of clay. It doesn't mean we don't drop the ball. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It simply means that when we really do yield to him, the power and the authority of God backs everything we do. And so we see that picture this morning in Samuel. So we're going to take this apart, but I asked the question in opening for us as Christians. Do we believe, do we really take to heart the fact that the very essence of God dwells in us through the power of the Holy Spirit? It's like saying, oh, I'm going to do some banking, but I've got limited funds. Well, no, you have, you know, a, a billionaire backing you. Well, then we wouldn't act like, you know, we're, we're strapped for cash. We have unlimited resources backing us. So is the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, is this making a difference in how we live our lives today? And if you get your toes stepped on, trust me, I have, I've had them done all week, so just get over it and move on. Um, just live with it. That, suck it up. That's what I would tell you. Suck it up. Um, so with that, would we think... If the power that created the heavens and earth were at our disposal, our lives should make a difference. Should it? Logically speaking, being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit should be a game changer. But is it? For us, depending on the day of the week, can, we, can the world discern anything different between us and how the unsaved population lives? And even if the world can't discern the difference, the question really, sometimes because they can't. When you're living a quiet, humble life honoring God, the world's not jumping up and down saying, oh, look, there's a Christian. Sometimes you're just living a quiet, humble life honoring God. Is that making an eternal difference in those that are in our immediate circle? So truthfully, if, if it isn't a question of whether or not the power of the Spirit is available to us, that, that's not the question. You know, I wonder about this verse often in John 14, 12. Jesus says this. He says, very, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do works I have been doing, which were pretty amazing, by the way. But it doesn't stop there. It says, and they will do even greater things than these. Is, is that something present in our lives today? Or, or is this just written 2,000 years ago and irrelevant? And I think, you know, when we, when we spend time, if we take an approach, a literal approach to God's word, we, we've got to ask these questions. So the real question isn't, can we live an amazing spirit-filled life? The real question is, why aren't we living day in and day out an amazing spirit-filled life? And so hopefully this morning we'll get some answers, and maybe I'm hoping that, that we get personal answers, because if you don't get an answer this morning, this, this is a wash, if you don't walk away saying, Lord, there's something that needs to be changed within me. And some days that's extreme action. And the truth of the matter is most human beings refuse in the church, refuse to take the extreme action that the Israelites took in Samuel this morning. Now, these guys found the dumpster, you know, and started carting stuff off to it. And things started to happen then. So I want to do a shout-out. Maybe sometimes you guys will catch this, but I, I want to do a shout-out to somebody who's not here this morning for Patricia and Don in honor of Don's uncle, who was a great man. And you guys will probably see a little later on what that's all about. So chapter 7, I want to put this in context where we are this morning. Chapter 7 is really an end note to chapters 4 through 6, where we saw Israel and the world contending with a holy God according to their terms and conditions versus according to God's terms and conditions. So from last week, we saw the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant and it had been in their territory for seven months. 
to where they finally conclude the thing has to go. And uh, for good reason, obviously, um, the problems, the physical problems that had associated that. So they decide it's time for the ark to go. The number seven is real important, by the way. It's a biblical number. A lot of numbers, biblical. Um, the number seven denotes completeness or perfection in God's perfect order. Um, our modern language, we would say 100%. That's how we would use the term. God says if it's perfect, it's complete, it's seven. So the Philistine priest, after seven months, decide to, that they've had enough or that God's fulfillment of what he's intended for them has reached its fullness. Philistine priests devise a plan to appease the God of the Israelites with some golden offerings in the form of tumors and rats. That's just interesting in and of itself. They place it in an ark. They place the ark in a cart, offer the stick the gold offerings in there as well, yoke it to two milk cows, and they say, if it goes that way, it's of God, and if it goes the other way, it's not of God, and it's just freak chance. And lo and behold, they, they, they're hoping it will be taken back into Israel toward a place called Beth Shemesh, which is actually what happens. And in Beth Shemesh, we read last week, the Levites come, offer a sacrifice of the cows, the people rejoice, but then things go sideways again, because you still have the same stiff-necked people. And so what happens, you read in Scripture, that 50,070 men are struck down by the Lord for looking upon or looking into the Ark of the Covenant. From Numbers chapter 4, that was prohibited from gazing upon the Ark of the Covenant. It's interesting now, your Scripture, your Bible probably says 70 men, but the old Greek and Hebrew versions note 50,070 men. And they respond with this, and I'm bringing this up to this point because we see now where Israel finally is as we open up with chapter 7 this morning. The Israelites cry out, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? So their response isn't, Oh, we blew it, and I'm sorry, and I'm repentant. Their response is, Who can serve a God like this? Like this God is ridiculous for placing these impositions on us. Now, they all knew the law, by the way, from from Numbers chapter 4. They knew you're not supposed to gaze upon the ark, yet they're complaining that we have an unreasonable God. It's like your kids, if you have kids, who, who you go and ask them to do something and the child responds to you, nothing I do ever pleases you. You're like, no, 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 not nothing, just this one thing, your disobedience in this one area. And so the extreme response from the Israelites denotes completely that they're oblivious to seeing how they fail to honor a holy God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How do we honor a holy God? That, that's the linchpin. I, if you walk away with anything this morning, is that we are failing miserably on the whole in honoring a holy God. And so we'll, so we'll take a look at that and see where, where we go with that. What do we do? So chapter 6 ends out, it says, they sent messengers to the people of, of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have, have returned the ark of the Lord. Come and take it to your own town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord. They brought the ark to Abinadad's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim for a long time, 20 years in all. And this brings up the, the setting where we are this morning now. One preacher summed up this concluding passage with the following words. Basically, a corrupt and dysfunctional priesthood dumps the most precious object from the house of God in a random Jewish home. That's how chapter 6 ends. Like, you didn't blow it. You blow it in biblical style. 
You've completely, you didn't drop the ball. The ball's in pieces. There's no ball to talk about, let alone a non-Levitical home. The most treasured piece that represents the holiness of God. They're like, get rid of it. That's all we care about. So we open up chapter, um, we're in verse chapter, chapter seven. We've got very, the caption this morning is making a real difference. That's, that's the caption, if Randy's wondering where I'm going with this. Two, two sections. Uh, we have the acts of repentance, and that's verses three through nine. Acts of repentance, very simple outline this morning. And the second sentence, the section, uh, verses 10 through 17, is the consequences of repentance. Acts of repentance, verses 3 through 9, and then the consequences of repentance, 10 through 17. So we last saw Samuel prescribing the word of the Lord in Shiloh back in chapter 3, and it appeared that no one was listening to him. Obviously, I think that's, that's um, apparent now. And now we fast forward, and the people have suffered slaughter at both the hands of their enemies and of the Lord, and they have a little bit of willingness now. You ever hear the statement, I'm a teabag Christian, I only work when I'm in hot water? That's fair, by the way. It really is fair because pain motivates us. You know, it's interesting, just that statement. I'm going to leave it alone, though. So, verses seven, chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, you are returning to the Lord with... Samuel said to the house of the Lord, if... If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So here's the choice. That's a choice for us today. Live your life the way you want and live in bondage and fear, or live your life the way the Lord requires and be delivered from bondage and live in freedom. Very simple. And, and this is kind of like spiritual groundhog day for us because every morning we wake up, that's the choice. That's a choice. And to the extent that I feed and tend to my spiritual well-being and honor God is the fact that I live that day out in accordance to his plans. And each little action has an each little consequence. And the actions are good, the consequences are good. The actions are bad, the consequences are bad. The good news with living in the body of Christ in a church community, though, is you build up momentum, and with community, with fellow believers, with the fellowship, we spur one another on, we keep each other accountable, we engage in activities that allow us to maintain a focus to live this out in practical application. I don't believe today that we can live the fullness of this life, generally speaking, outside of the body of Christ. You can't do it by yourself. I'm, truthfully, I can't. I'll say it, put it that way. I'm way too weak not to have the love and the encouragement and the community around me to spur me on, to encourage me, to love me, to pray for me. So that's the choice each morning for us. Live it according to my will or God's will. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths and they serve the Lord only. And there's tangible evidence of repentance. It's very simple. Their behavior's changed. Then Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord, they're owning it. 
And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they were sitting ducks. No, it doesn't say that, by the way. But they were, okay? So they're not, well, they were sitting ducks. But Scripture doesn't say the ducks thing. So let me go back to this. And so they gathered at Mizpah. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Oops. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. They hadn't gathered for battle. They weren't ready. They didn't bring all their armaments, their char- everything. They were, they were sitting docks. They were gathering to repent and worship and be reconciled to God at Mizpah. And now all of a sudden there's troops marching in from the west. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines, and for good reason. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not... Cr- do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered, it to the whole burnt, and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered him. So the key here to godly repentance, it's a holy reverence for God. But this helps us very little at the moment. It's like saying, love Jesus. How do you serve the Lord? Love Jesus. That, that doesn't do it. That's a trite expression. That doesn't change the course of an ocean liner from one way to the other. So what does it mean? What, what does it mean to say, love Jesus, or, or develop a holy reverence for God? We see in this passage a response manifesting this reverence, this holy reverence. The people seek a returning to the Lord without any reservations, They renounced their foreign gods and backed that up by literally removing the gods from their presence. Then and there was an intentional directing of their hearts to the Lord and the making of a commitment to serve him only. They were subject to judgment by Samuel. They confessed what was going on. They fasted and they prayed. Oh, everything changes now when your actions change in that manner. So I I read this passage and I kind of sat there going, how do I get this to... How do we see what this means? How do we revere anyone? How do we honor anyone in our culture today? What do we do that denotes the highest form of exaltation in our culture? What was last weekend? Memorial Day. And so I started thinking maybe Memorial Day for us as Americans might look like the canary in the mine shaft. So let's talk about this. If Memorial Day isn't the greatest day in the year for us as a culture, to honor and exalt or to show a high regard or a reverence for those who have blessed us as a collective nation, then we don't have another day that does it. You say, oh, Labor Day. No, no, no. These are the guys that died, that bled out in foreign lands, that never came home. And maybe that denotes our capacity to honor anyone. And the scary part is maybe it denotes our lack of ability to honor. So I was reading a blog, and um, it's, it's an interesting blog. Very, really neat people that write it. Uh, primarily a woman, but her husband's always in the background. And he wrote something, a, an article commemorating Memorial Day called Forever Young. And I'm going to read this. It reads... I don't know how he died, really. No one does, since everyone who was with him died more or less at the same time. I bet he was afraid. 
I would have been. It must have been hell on earth, above earth to be exact. A booming, banging, grinding, shaking, shattering horror. Especially must have been tough on him hanging in as he was below the belly of a crippled airplane. A bubble of glass exposed to the flank and the fire from the enemy aircraft. A too visible target. Too slow. Too slow. He was probably the youngest man on board. He was certainly the lowest ranking member of that, the ten men who, who had made up the crew. That first day of August 1943, he'd only been in the Army Air Force Corps for a year and a half. He'd been overseas for six months. He was 19 years old. He came from a farming family that lived in a very small town in Kansas. He had one sister, two brothers, and two very worried parents. He was assigned to the 98th BG, a bomber group stationed in Benghazi, Libya. His mission that day? in coordination with 178 bombers and 1,700 crew members. The 98th BG was to attack and destroy oil refineries in Pelosti, Romania. This is insane, by the way. When you start thinking through what they're doing here, you go, they're nuts. But they also knew the enemy they were fighting. The facilities provided the Third Reich with one-third of its fuel, and the Nazis were hungry for fuel in the waning days of 1943. The oil refineries at the Plosti were protected by a massive anti-aircraft battery and hundreds of Germans and Romanian fighter planes. The distance traveled by the Allied bombers meant no fighter protection could attend them. They were alone. This isn't, I mean, you, you keep reading this and you go, no, don't, you don't want to do that. Can't, couldn't I stay home this afternoon? It was a tremendous undertaking, a gamble of men and machines desperately needed for the war effort. A 2,400-mile, 18-hour there and back again, with only a half hour of available time over the target. And in the end, over 500 airmen and 52 bombers. There was no going home. They say he's buried in a cemetery near Lige, Belgium. The records show that his B-24 was shot down over the refinery, but that it happened before the crew could disgorge the plane's 8,000-pound payload of high explosives. And the B-24 Liberator was well-known for burning merrily when it crashed. But his name is on one of those white crosses standing in formation at the loving, well-tended cemetery. Do we got a picture to put up here? Maybe we can take a look at this. You know... I go cold. I, I, like, miss something here. When you start to realize every one of those crosses denotes a life like this. When we close this morning, I'm going to run a screen show of all the cemeteries in Europe where all the men are buried. His parents back in Kansas received the medals he was awarded posthumously at a ceremony, probably many such ceremonies on the same day. The medals were a distinguished flying cross, a purple heart, and the air medal in which three oak, with three oak leaf clusters. Both his brothers eventually went to the war as well, one another tail gunner, the other as a pilot. His younger sister stayed home, grieving the older brother she would never see again. 
on this side. I wonder what percent of Americans this past weekend spent 10 minutes reflecting over such persons who gave their lives. What percent? I wonder how these statistics drop for people 50 and under. I'm 51, by the way. I can use my own stats. Anyone here have an idea how many Americans are buried in Europe? According to one estimate, we have 104,366 Americans buried in Europe. I wonder how many of us could name even one. And here's the point. If we can't even honor and commemorate our fallen soldiers who gave their lives for our very freedom and liberty, men who we could see and hear and who our ancestors birthed and raised, how much less can we honor a holy God who's unseen? If we can't honor these guys, and this is in our face, what capacity do we have to honor a holy God? And then we wonder why the church is in a state of tatters in America. See, our culture, the problem is, our modern generation has lost touch with the ability to honor, give honor to others, let alone honor a holy God. And our church is full of people that come from our culture. Nonetheless, we are called to honor God, who is not only the giver of life and liberty, but the God who has blessed America with an abundance not known in modern history to any other land. So what does a high view of God look like? I'm clueless. I'll confess. Maybe explaining to us who've lost it or who see or who just feel like it's pointless Maybe pointing out how we've lost it and how it slipped through our fingers might help us back up the way we came to reestablish that sense of honor. A.W. Tozer made some painful statements. I got an A.W. Tozer kick this Sunday morning. Let me read something, a quote from him. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and substituted for one so low, so ignoble, that the utterly unworthy of thinking it is, it is to be un, utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. He writes hard. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And the very unawareness only makes the situation all the more tragic. The low view of God entertained on, almost unequivocally by Christians in this, in this cause. Excuse me. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. So what he's saying is that, that from this low view of God flows the whole mess. From here is the fountainhead of the mess we live in. A whole new philosophy of Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. You see, what happened in Samuel's day is the same thing that's happening to us in America. God comes, awakens the soul. The soul responds, rejoices greatly. Prosperity, grace, and mercy follow. And then, slowly, the soul drifts from its first love. Only one day to be fully supplanted by a meaningless life, pursuit of things that are temporary and of no significance, all springing from a selfish, self-centered versus God-centered human being. And then the day of reckoning comes and we awaken only to realize the spirit of the Lord departed long ago and we are living in bondage. 
This was not a happy sermon to put together, by the way. You're like sitting here going, do I really, God, want to give this? Now, I kind of feel like how, how all of these minor prophets, the major prophets, felt like, God, what do you want me to do? Give them some bad news. Really? How long do I have to do this? Till everyone hears it and rejects you unequivocally. Thanks, God. Could I have another job? You know, I, I don't know where else to go, you know, with some of this stuff. It's, Tozer continues, with our loss of the sense of the majesty has come a further loss of religious awe and consciousness of divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. And I would say it's only gotten worse since he penned those words. Let me give you the principle. It's a painful one. Uh, the principle, just a simple statement of truth. A low view of God conveniently accommodates the self-centered Christian. A low view of God conveniently accommodates the self-centered Christian. A low view of God conveniently accommodates the self-centered Christian. So from the text we see in Samuel's call to repentance, Israel had the awakening of their religion when they realized that they were going to do what God wants versus what they want. That's the essence of it, doing what God wants versus what they want. And as a result of this, this awakening and honest response to God required drastic action. And that's why I bring this up today, because if you take drastic action, the people in your church are going to call you a fanatic. In this doxa, you're going to offend some people. In our midst, they're going to be angry, because what happens when you take drastic action to honor a king, and that's how you honor a king. See, I don't walk up to a king and shake his hand. You bow down and kiss his hand. There's a big difference. And if everybody else is standing around the king, walking up trying to shake his hand, and you bow down and kiss his hand, everybody else feels like, what? An idiot. I dropped the ball. I blew it. I failed to recognize who the king is and approach him with due reverence because just one of us approached him with holy reverence. <coughs> See, when we start acting like there's a holy God, even the people in church get upset unless they're willing to step up and assume the standards to serve the same God. So the people in Israelites, they returned to the Lord without any reservation. They renounced and literally removed the foreign gods from their very landscape. They got dumpsters and dragged these carbon images and they deep-sixed them. They renounced and literally removed the foreign gods. There was an intentional directing of their hearts to the Lord and the making of a commitment to serve Him only. They fasted, confessed their sins, was judged and prayed. So what would a return to God look like for us? And maybe it's just that we, we can start with one question. Is our religion about what Christ wants or what we want? Now, if you answer that with your head, you're always going to give it the wrong answer. Because you know what I'm going to tell you? If you ask me, oh, of course it's what Jesus wants. Right? If you go to 100 Christians and say, are you living for Christ or for what you want? What do you think they're going to say? So don't trust what comes out of their mouth. That's the point. 
The words are, stop, don't, don't do that. Let's, let's step back. And so ask this question. Don't answer it with your heart. Answer it with a merciless assessment of our behavior. Where do we spend our spare waking hours? Gratifying ourselves or seeking the Lord and serving with others? Quick test, quick test. Combine the amount of time you spent in the last week in prayer and in the word with the amount of time you spent on the TV and or the computer. Just compare the two. And I'm not here to beat you up for getting on the computer. This is me. I'm just saying gauge where we spend our time. That's all. And I'll even give you a pass if you're watching religious programs or reading religious vlogs on the computer. Extract that time out from your assessment, okay? I'll give you a little, there, a little extra time there, right? Randy, you like that, all right? Because you can use those things to glorify God, and that's great. We're thrilled. We rejoice. For those of us who are truly living for the Lord and hitting on all cylinders, I just want to praise God. I just want to rejoice now and say, well done, because they're here. They're in our midst, by the way. I know people sitting here that if you do the assessment, they got to pass. And I rejoice and I praise God for that. But for us that are flunking the test, for those of us who flunk the test, who are drifting or who have lost a high view of God, let us consider drastic action. Comparing to what the Israelites did in Samuel's day with Baals and the Ashtoreths, it wasn't that they said, oh, I'm going to limit some internet time. They would unplug the, they threw the TVs out. They disconnected from the internet. They said, we're done. It was drastic. It wasn't this, let's cuddle our sin and not, not send it out too, too abruptly. So I asked the question for us this morning, what needs to go? If you want to honor God, if you want to honor God, what needs to go? And that's not a question I can answer for you up here today. And it's a question, and unless you really spend time asking, you're not even going to get the answer yourself, I'll tell you that. If you really want it, you'll get it. But if you don't really want it, it's a wash, we'll move on. Tozer did a really great thing. Hudson, can you pop up Tozer? Rules for self-discovery. I love this. You want to find out where you are in your faith? Do this. What do we want most? Write the top three things. A new car, house in the mountains. You know, come on. Let's, let's talk about what do we want most. Save the lost. Change the grand strand for the cause of Christ. Honor God with excellence. Or is it more, bigger, and better? That's easy. What do we think about most? Having my back scratched and eating out at Rio's. I like Rio's, by the way. So don't condemn me too much, Rick. Uh, don't condemn me too much. I missed it this week. I blew it. I don't know how that happened. What do, we, what do we preoccupy ourselves with? Is it more, bigger, and better? Is it financial security? Is it, is it raising our kids the right way? Or is it honoring the king? Is there a driving passion for the lost? How do we use our money? Oh, just look at your checkbook or your visa statement. What do we do with our leisure time? That's the big deal, by the way. We got to work. We got to hustle. We got to do things out there. You have to raise your kids. You got to get them fed. You got to pay the light bill. That's all a wash. But what do you do when you got an extra hour to burn? Where do we go? Next one's a huge one, the company we enjoy. Do you spend your time around people that make you feel spiritually this big? Because if you do, they're going to raise the bar and they're going to totally change the way you see the world and how you live your faith. I thought I was awfully spiritual. I served in the prayer tent. Friday night, I gave up Friday night, 8 to 12 p.m. 
And then Ronnie shows up and ruins it for me because he serves the midnight to 3 a.m. shift. No more virtue in me giving up Friday night. Heck, he's staying up all night. Who's the holy one there, right? And when you spend time around people like that, you, they mess with you. you. You walk away going, I serve the Lord, but not that well, right? I'm joking a little with you, but, but when you do those types of things, you see a different level for how we honor the king. Who and what we admire. Man, that's a big one. Who are your kings and queens in your life today? Who's on your wall? And what do we laugh at? And I'll tell you, the more I laugh at myself versus laughing at others, it tells you something about where I am. <clears throat> Little test. So if you refuse to swing the machete on what needs to go, you'll be able to maintain a comfortable and convenient low view of God, and you'll live in a half-dead spiritual state. But just don't complain when there's no peace in our land or in our homes, or in our hearts. We were just killing time. And Tozer has a great quote. When you kill time, remember it has no resurrection. Painful statement. But just beyond giving up anything, the Israelites took further steps in repentance. They committed to serve him. They fasted. They confessed their sins, and they prayed. So we pick up in the second section, the consequence of repentance. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Israel didn't defeat them. The Lord defeated them. They didn't raise a sword. So here's the deal. You trust and honor God, you're unprepared for battle, and you get the victory, or you do it your way, prepare, armor up, and get slaughtered. It's your call. I'm flexible. So it says this. Samuel to, and then the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Do you understand how this guy's life changed the landscape of his nation? Is the spirit that drove him the same spirit that's present in our midst that can inspire you to live this type of a life? We close with a quote with Tozer that just nails this. It's, it's fantastic. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities of the Philistines had taken from Israel, were restored to Israel, from Akron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So we know that in obedience to Samuel's call, the Israelites gathered at Mizpah. Um, the Philistines saw this and thought they were sitting ducks. And God does the rest. So what's the takeaway for us today? Samuel was one man who stepped out in obedience to God. See, if you're that one man or woman here today, I don't care what your history is, it's irrelevant. Do you know that the authority of God to alter a life like Samuel's is the same authority that's at our disposal? And that's unbelievable. That, that's unbelievable. He was one man. His religion was about doing the business of his heavenly father and obedience brought peace and revival to a nation. His high view of God, of the holiness of God, is what drove his actions. 
and the message to the people. And when the people received it and embraced the message, the land and history was changed. All because of one man's high view of God. Don't ever believe that God can't do mighty things with you. It's the biggest lie that Satan sends out. Oh, somebody else. No, 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 no. This holy God through you can do unbelievable things. The blog I was reading continues. Both the brothers eventually went to war as well. One went as the tail gunner, the other as the pilot. His younger sister stayed at home grieving the older brother she would never see again. Eventually, the, sister, the younger sister who stayed at home married my father. This is the guy writing the blog. The parents, the brothers, and the sisters all passed away some time ago. There is now no one who can tell me anything more about Donald Philip Sowers, Sergeant, United States Army, Air Force Corp., the uncle I never knew and whose name I share. Donald Philip Sowers never woke up to see the face of his bride, on the day after his wedding. He never paced the floor late at night singing softly to an infant daughter who couldn't sleep. He never got to hold the hand of his child for the last time she needed or wanted help to cross the street. Never felt the aches and pains of a long life well lived and well loved. But I will remember him, and so will my children. If you've taken the time to read this, tip a glass in his name. Iced tea is fine. And remember him. And all the other lost brothers and sisters as well. Think of the things he missed for the things we have. That should be deafening. Donald Philip Sowers died fighting the greatest evil of our time, a young man of 19 who will never grow old. A few years after this was printed, a blog reader contacted us. She had visited, I'm going to butcher the word, Ardennes Cemetery in Lige, Belgium, and found the grave of my uncle's, my husband's uncle. Tutsi, can we pop this up? It's amazing. There's his name. She kindly sent us many photographs of the cemetery in general, but the tomb marker in particular. They're moving beyond words. The blog continues, too many people have no idea what Memorial Day really is. It's about a day to welcome summer, a day for barbecues, for beer, picnics, and an extra day off of work. And just as many people today have no idea about how to commemorate Memorial Day, we in the church have no idea on how to commemorate and honor and esteem a holy God. And I thought about this, that in honoring men we can learn to honor God. The men are the closest, and if we can't honor these guys, we'll never honor God. That's the, God, that's the bottom line. So if we're going to practice and learn honor, we've got to start somewhere. And that's why this blog just blew me away when I read it. See, we learn by example, by illustration, by witness. And when we honor men, we get the feel of it, kind of like riding a bike and then going onto a motorcycle. Can't ride a motorcycle without learning to ride a bike. And, you know, for us today, there's, there's profound hope. Because if you look at this cross on the screen behind me, 
If you look beyond the name, you want to put that back up again? If you want to look beyond the name, what is the name etched into? And there's the hope. Isn't it interesting that we honor these names, but we do it with a cross? Because it's the closest we can get this side of eternity on how to honor a holy God. So if you want to honor a holy God, we've been taught through God's word, we go to his son. And Jesus told us, he who has seen me has seen the father. If you've known me, you've known my father. Jesus told us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. But to exalt him, what do we do? Got to change our behavior. We've got to get the dumpster. We've got to own our sin. We've got to confess it. We've got to fast. We've got to pray. We've, we've got to alter the course of our existence. Jesus told us, if anyone, if, whoever wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up a cross. I love that and follow me. Tozer made the statement, the man who would truly know God must give him time. It is impossible to maintain a low view of God if we deny ourselves and follow him. Because when we start to follow him, he comes into focus. And there we see a mighty God, a wonderful counselor. We see the Prince of Peace. We see the one who is and who was and is to come. We see the Almighty. See, in denying ourselves and taking up that cross and following him, we're able to honor the king. And it's only then that the spirit can have full reign and authority in our life. And that's when it makes all the difference. So with this in closing, I wanna, I'm going to repeat this statement twice because it's the big deal. There's a, there's a couple in here, so we're going to take these words and everything's going to change. The words of Tozer. We can be in our day what heroes of faith were in their day. But remember, at the time, they didn't know they were heroes. Let me say this again so you get it. We can be in our day what the heroes of faith, like Samuel, were in their day. But remember at that time, they didn't know they were heroes. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that in our midst this morning, there are heroes who, who are saying, Lord, I, I'm going, and I'm not looking back, and I'm going to put my hand on the plow, and I will honor you, I will exalt you, I will follow you, I will deny myself. And Father, that makes all the difference. To the rest of us, maybe they'll stand as a rebuke to the way we choose to live. Uh, Lord, I leave that between them. I just leave it with them. But we trust you. We thank you. We thank you for the saving grace that flows from that cross. We thank you for the men in America who have gone before us, who have given their lives, that have given us an ability to see what sacrifice really looks like. Lord, I also thank you for the fact that for us here, we, we have so much and that we can appreciate it. And we do thank you, and we do thank those men who've made it possible for us to enjoy the gift of a beautiful early summer day. Lord, we just thank you for your grace and for the ability to worship and to gather this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.